0: Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Holbrook, 2010, part one. There's a video on YouTube. It's grainy footage. It dates back to 1987. In it, two black women are set on a large, white, cast iron bed in what looks like a plush hotel room. They seem to be wearing bathrobes and slippers and the pair are talking about life as a woman. Life as a black woman and life as a black woman in America. They're not pop stars or reality TV stars. They aren't athletes or influencers. The two of the most culturally and politically significant women in American history. On the right of the screen is Oprah Winfrey. On the left, Maya Angelou. Oprah is, well, Oprah. But Maya, she's altogether something else. Hollywood's first black female director. She's most known as a writer, essayist, playwright and poet. As a civil rights activist, Angelou worked with Dr Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. One of the most decorated and celebrated writers in American literature, she gave voice to the black struggle, not only in the US, but around the world. In the video, she talks about racism and how it manifests itself and how, more broadly, When a person's attitude or feelings present themselves to you, take it on face value. Ignore the protestations or excuses. Trust that you have seen them for what they are, regardless of what they might go on to say. When someone shows you who they are, she said, believe them the first time. In 2010, the ex-partner of Rachel Slack showed the authorities who he was. In 2010, the father of Rachel's baby son, Auden, told Rachel, who subsequently informed the police, what he was going to do to them. Regardless of this, neither the police, the mental health services, his GP, nobody chose to believe him, and as such, nobody was able to stop him. Moving abroad, to live and to work, offers the opportunity not only to experience a different way of life, but also to meet new people, try new things. Growing up in a genteel, semi-rural village in Derbyshire, Rachel Slack found just such an experience in Spain. She wasn't alone. Every year, at least before Brexit, made things a whole lot more difficult. Almost 100,000 Brits worked either temporarily for the summer or settled long term as residents in Spain. In 2001, Rachel moved to Ronda, a small but idyllic coastal town in Andalusia, renowned for its late 18th century architecture. Rachel loved her time in Ronda, its culture and its climate. Alongside a number of jobs, she worked at the luxurious Skari Racetrack and Resort, spending her spare time indulging in a passion for art. She captured the beauty and architecture of the area with such a studied eye that her work was featured in an exhibition at the Ronda Art Gallery. And it was there she started an affair with married gallery manager Andrew Cairns. To her friends and colleagues in Spain Rachel was known as a caring, warm and generous woman Both with her time and inner nature It was a trait she brought with her from England A trait which was nurtured within an affectionate and supportive family Likely to welcome someone with a hug From an early age she learnt the value of caring for those in need At 12 her father fell seriously ill Alongside her mother and brother, the family pulled together closer to give him not only the practical but also emotional care necessary to make the last few years as comfortable as possible. It was just such an instinct that brought her back to England in 2007. With her mother, Joan, growing older and her brother living down south, Rachel saw it as her duty to repay the familiar love That she'd grown up into. Firstly, Rachel lived with her mother in Ripley, a township nine miles north of Derby. I put the term township in audio quotation marks, as it's the only place outside of South Africa that I've ever heard define itself as such, but, well, that's what they call it, so who am I to complain? Eventually, she settled in Holbrook, a small village of about 1,000 people in the foothills of the Peak District. With narrow, winding streets flanked by chocolate box, gritstone and Welsh slate cottages, it enjoys the two facilities essential to life in an English country setting, a church and a pub. The pretty little cottage Rachel chose to make home in Holbrook was a couple of doors down from the Spotted Cow pub, which acted as an unofficial focal point for community activity. Positioned as the cottage was, in an elevated space, Rachel's cottage offered broad, expansive views over Maitney Hall, the River Derwent and acres of rolling Derbyshire countryside. Taking a job as a personal assistant to the managing director of a stockbroking firm, she settled back into life in England easy enough, reconnecting with friends and relishing the proximity of her family. It was the start of a new chapter in her life, She'd enjoyed her adventures in Spain but now she was about to embark on a new challenge and not quite leave her previous life behind but build on her experiences and move forward into her future. One aspect of her life in Spain that, within a few months of her return, followed her to Derbyshire was the man with whom she'd embarked on an affair, gallery manager Andrew Cairns. His intention was to resume his career in Derbyshire and also rekindle his relationship with Rachel. Within a short while, he and Rachel resuming the relationship they'd started in Rhonda, Andrew moved into the cottage in Holbrook, and just before Christmas of 2007, the pair announced they were to have a baby. What should have been a wonderful time for the couple was anything but. Mental health issues in Andrew, which had first become evident to those who knew him before he returned to the UK, resurfaced. Managing Andrew's trip to the GP and subsequent referrals to the community and primary care team of the Mental Health Trust became a big part of Rachel's life. At a time when she'd have expected with the one accepting care, she was dealing with an Andrew who was not only suffering from low mood and anxiety, but was also becoming belligerent. And possessive of her. On top of this, a reluctance to engage with the psychiatric help he was being offered, compounded by a failure to comply with his prescribed antidepressants, citing adverse effects as the reason, caused greater problems than it might. Despite the physical and emotional pressures he was under, Rachel's pregnancy progressed without complication. Just as she'd taken a caring role when her father became ill, just as she'd returned to the UK to be closer to her aged mother Joan, she carried the weight of Andrew's problems on her shoulders with grace and good nature. Health visitors never noticed any stress or strain, only ever commenting on the taciturn and disengaged father-to-be. If uncommunicative and disinterested were personality traits of Andrew, rather than symptoms of a broader problem that would have been at least a manageable thing. But as Andrew's condition worsened and his mood became darker, Rachel became increasingly worried. After yet another round of psychiatric assessment, it was decided that Andrew carried the risk of suicide and as such, just four weeks before the birth of their first child, he was admitted to the Harrington unit at Chesterfield Royal Hospital as a psychiatric inpatient. Having been prescribed with antidepressants and with an apparent improvement in his condition, Andrew was discharged back into primary care the week before the baby was due, Rachel being formally recognised as being his primary carer. All of this and seven days later, baby Auden was born. six pounds five ounces and beyond an inherited relatively minor and easily corrected problem with his foot, Auden was a healthy and happy baby. Despite a brief period of excessive blood loss during birth, Rachel was well too and the mother and baby bonded quickly. Even while spending a precautionary day or so in the high dependency ward, Rachel was able to breastfeed her son an illustration of a determination to address the needs of others even while she herself was due a little bit of care and attention a new baby boy a husband on the mend and maternity leave opening out ahead of her a birth often said to represent renewal and a reset a time to take stock and refocus on what's important in life a time for a family to come together and refocus were that the case of Rachel, Andrew and Auden, this episode would end here. This isn't the end of the story though, it's simply the end of the beginning. Anyone who's had a child will remember the feeling of absolute terror the moment you realise that for some reason, trained and experienced medical professionals are letting you take home this small, vulnerable, precious little thing. Yes, it happens every minute of every day, but still, the enormity of the responsibility can be overwhelming. Some people, understandably, become crippled with anxiety or worry. I can barely look after myself. How on earth can I be responsible for a human life? Rachel wasn't that woman. Rachel was a born mother. She wore her care and empathy as easily as she did a smile. Arranging with her employer to largely work from home after Auden was born, she intended to give as much of herself as possible to the care of her first son and then to her partner. Health visitors, though unaware of Andrew's mental health problems, saw a mother who was focused on the care of her child. Middle class with a beautiful home in an idyllic country setting, she possessed the strength and sensitivity to appropriately care for her son but also had family close by to provide support as and when needed. From a professional point of view, there really was nothing to see here. The very strength and sensitivity which others saw as Rachel's superpower masked the genuine pressure on her. Pressures that were growing and growing. Despite having a young baby to care for, The entirety of the responsibility for supporting the family practically, emotionally and financially fell to Rachel. Care from both a young baby and a partner were taking its toll and decisions were made, whether mutually or not, for her and Andrew to separate. Ever one to put her own need second, Rachel agreed to maintain not only contact between father and son, After he secured a flat a few miles away through a housing charity, she'd keep in constant contact with him, driving him to his appointments, to the shops, even going as far as keeping an eye on his finances. All of this, she told People, was because for all of his problems at the moment, Rachel wanted Andrew to be part of Auden's life. And while she wouldn't allow him unsupervised contact with his son, as the child got older and the father got better, She hoped that they could share meaningful time together, independent of her. Over the next 18 months, Rachel's commitment to this plan for the future was tested to destruction. Andrew's mental health was fluctuating wildly. On several occasions, the police were called to deal with Andrew's refusal to accept that the relationship between he and Rachel was over. He'd turn up at Rachel and Norden's home in Holbrook, unannounced and uninvited. Barred entry, he'd refuse to leave, with not only Rachel, but also neighbours calling the police. Studies have shown that the greatest challenge to recovery or management of mental health-related issues is patient compliance. More than any other category of medicine, once a diagnosis has been made, and a treatment plan decided upon. Patients who suffer from depression, anxiety, low mood and suicidal ideation are among those least likely to attend doctor's appointments, complete a course of drugs, or establish and maintain lifestyle changes necessary to challenge their symptoms. The result is therefore a population of patients for whom the very treatment they require to get better is thwarted, by the symptoms they designed to treat. Andrew's mental health, though it underwent peaks and troughs, took a downward trajectory. Time in and out of residential psychiatric care were a rare respite for Rachel. A time when she could relax, knowing that every click of the gate or knock of the door would not be a prelude to a long and emotionally draining negotiation with Andrew. good to her promise to establish a positive relationship between father and son, Rachel took Auden to hospital to see Andrew. A remarkable sacrifice on her part, considering the turmoil he caused her on a near-continual basis. Attempts to encourage Andrew to re-engage with his family in Greater Manchester came to nothing, as despite a willingness on their side to see and support him, Andrew either cancelled meetings at the last minute or fail to show. Regardless of the setbacks, regardless of the advice of friends and family, Rachel persevered with Andrew. One reason for her generosity of spirit may have been love. Not love for Andrew, that ship had sailed a long time ago, but rekindled love. In January 2010, Rachel reconnected with a man called John Barlow. The same age as Rachel, for one long summer at the age of 16, the two sweethearts enjoyed their time together as only adolescent love allows, in a state of all-consuming joy. By autumn, though, with their return to the respective schools, the relationship faded out, cherished by both as a memory of a very special time. Back together, after 22 years, Rachel's family saw a difference a stable and supportive partner was having on Rachel. While she still felt responsible for nurturing a relationship between Andrew and Auden, she was beginning to look and feel more relaxed, less burdened and more optimistic about the future. It was an optimism that was shared by the entire family when, four months later, the pair announced that they were going to have a baby, a brother or sister for Auden. The joy of a new child wasn't universal, however. Andrew's reaction was toxic. A realisation that their relationship was finally over for good and an upset at what he had lost had been a normal reaction in the situation, but instead there was anger and bitterness. It was disgusting for him that Rachel was having a child from a relationship that was still just a few months old. He loved her. He wanted them to marry. She was a liar and she'd led him on, which she never did. And cruel in her treatment of him, which couldn't have been further from the truth. Somewhat unsurprisingly, on finding out about the upcoming birth, Andrew almost entirely withdrew into himself and stopped engaging in any meaningful way, with the mental health support on offer. The only regular medical interactions he had were with his GP, whom he seemed to trust, with a few scheduled appointments he attended with various members of the community mental health team, ending with him either in silence or storming out in tears or a rage of anger. Andrew's dealing with the housing charity that provided his accommodation wasn't faring much better, Conditional on staying in the flat he was living in was the commitment to a programme of therapeutic activity as well as regular communication. By the end of May 2010, this relationship had broken down entirely and he rarely stayed at the flat. Instead, an unbeknown to anyone sleeping rough on the streets or in the parks. In the previous weeks, Rachel had noticed a decline in Andrew's physical and mental state. In an attempt to arrest this, she allowed him, under her supervision, contact between himself and Auden. On the 26th of March, however, Andrew's behaviour went a step too far. After an outburst of petty annoyance and irritation, he forcibly refused to leave the car when asked. Out of a mixture of fear and frustration, Rachel kept driving and explained that they were driving in the direction of the police station. Whether he'd fallen upon a moment of honesty and clarity, or out of an attempt to emotionally manipulate her, Andrew admitted to Rachel that he'd been sleeping rough on the streets and that he intended to end his own life. It wasn't the first time he'd made such threats against himself, but, as she'd always done, Rachel took it seriously. With little other options available to her, Rachel continued on the route to the police station and reported the matter. On arrival, Andrew refused to get out of the car and after explaining what was going on and what he'd said to her to the police officer present at reception, Andrew was encouraged to leave the vehicle and wait inside the station while a mental health assessment was organised. An assessment conducted by the senior clinical psychologist from the Community Mental Health Service which concluded that he presented no meaningful threat to himself or others and after which... The police dropped him back at his flat. The following morning, Rachel's mobile rang. It was Andrew. The relief that he was safe quickly subsided when, within moments, he was blaming her for his current situation. All he'd ever wanted to do was to be a husband and a father, he cried. Could he come and see his son, please? Rachel's life was moving on. She secured a job which she was able to fit around a caring for Auden. She was in a new relationship with a man who cared for her and supported her. The beautiful little cottage that had once seen a place of worry and anxiety was now one of love, security and hope. She still wanted Auden to have a father he could be proud of, one he could, if not right now, but at some point in the future, have a meaningful relationship with. Rachel agreed he could come to the house and visit Auden, as long as he promised not to cause a scene. For the morning and into the afternoon, the visit of Andrew went off without incident. If not exactly convivial, an uneasy peace had seemed to settle, and a suggestion that the three visit a local park seemed like a positive way to end their time together. Before long, however, among the swing, slide and roundabout at Mellors Lane Park, less than five minutes' drive from the cottage, things turned ugly. Obviously feeling that their time together was coming to an end, realising that what had been a pleasant day wasn't some sort of reconciliation, Andrew flew into a rage and unleashed a tirade against Rachel. You're a fucking bitch for abandoning me and getting together with someone else and getting pregnant. I've given up everything to be with you. If you're going to make it difficult, I'll make it more so. You've no idea what I'm capable of. I'll kill you and, gesturing towards Orden, take him with me. Mellors Park is at the very edge of the village of Holbrook. Set back from the road, the nearest property is something like 70 or 80 metres away, across a farmer's field. Rachel found herself facing a fiercely angry man who was threatening to kill her and take her young son. Regardless of the experiences she'd had with dealing with Andrew previously, how she managed to negotiate out of this situation is a miracle. Somehow, she persuaded Andrew to let her do some shopping for him before dropping him back at his virtually abandoned flat. She walked both him and Auden back to the cottage and for fear he refused to leave the vehicle when returning Andrew to his flat, arranged to pick up a partner, Robert Barlow, from work on the way. On the drive back home after a thankfully incident-free delivery of Andrew home, Rachel told Robert what had happened at the park, and what Andrew had said. The calm and considered way that Robert dealt with the situation says so much about why he and Rachel had found happiness together. Understandably, his first instinct was to go round and speak to Andrew himself. That wasn't something Rachel wanted though, and in respect of her wishes he agreed, instead insisting that Rachel notify the police. Regardless of a report to the police, that night Rachel received dozens of calls from Andrew. The following day, the 27th Thursday, the calls continued and again, despite requests for him not to, Andrew turned up at the house, demanding to be let in. The police were notified. Andrew's mental health was assessed. He was again dropped back at his flat. This was a pattern of behaviour that continued on the Friday, and surely would have done over the bank holiday weekend, were it not that Andrew was taken into the police custody. More statements were taken from Rachel and Robert. The police consulted with the community mental health team. They consulted with the psychiatrists. The mental health team reported back to the police. Somewhere in the fog of all this, a plan was made that as the only medical professional Andrew had anything close to a consistent relationship with was his GP, and as he had a pre-arranged appointment scheduled for the following Tuesday, he'd be released from custody and taken home to his flat with more information and with the input of his GP it was believed that an informed decision could be made as to his care, providing stability for Andrew as well as freedom for Rachel. There were restrictions placed on Andrew. The police assessed that he represented a genuine risk to Rachel so, as a condition of his release, he was to stay away from Rachel. He was not to attempt to contact her and that in no circumstances was his ago near the village of Holbrook. Andrew called Rachel a couple of times in the days following his release from custody, but she let them go to voicemail. She made a note in a diary to check in with him at some point, just to make sure he was okay, just to remind him of his doctor's appointment on the Wednesday morning. Rachel was a caring and compassionate woman. She saw good in people who others would discard she reached out to help when others would push away. Her accommodation of Andrew in her life was an example of that, regardless of how much easier things would have been for her to take the harder line with him. That wasn't Rachel's nature though, and that was the reason she spoke to his sister, Diane, on Monday after his release. According to Diane, she'd spoken to her brother that morning, he seemed still to be laying all of his misfortunes in his life at Rachel's door and was continuing to complain that Rachel was trying to stop him seeing his son, something that was as far from the truth as could be imagined. The call ended with both women agreeing to stay in touch. Both women wanting more than anything else, though for very different reasons, for Andrew to get the help he needed and to move on with his life. It's a warm, one of the first warm days of the year and I'm here in the Mellors Lane play park in Holbrook and this is where Rachel and Andrew and Auden came after what had been, I don't think anyone could describe the contact that Andrew had with Rachel and Auden as being normal or joyous but it was a, a relatively a relatively fine and event-free time together and um, and just it's a large square park it's probably about the size of a football pitch or a soccer field if you're in the States um, and up at the top end here where I am is where all the children's play equipment is. There's swings and slides, there's a roundabout, um, All the there's climbing frames obviously and the, some of them are made of that kind of thick wooden timber um, that kind of go off at asymmetric angles from each other and you know on a i'm sure in a few hours time will be overloaded with kids swinging and jumping And um, all the play equipment is dated from different times there's some which looks brand spanking new um and looks like the kind of stuff that you find in a, um <clears throat> i don't know like a tv drama in some european city where the parents stood out in big coats holding coffees while beautifully manicured children are running around um, and then there's older stuff um, which is kind of steel and heavily painted and it's kind of obviously had a good few bumps and scrapes on it but it's a it's a lovely little calm peaceful oasis up the other end of the play park is Uh, A kind of smaller set of football goals. And there's a big expanse of grass in front of that. And you can imagine kids kicking a ball there, playing. There's uh, a couple of those outdoor gym contraptions. So there's like a, what's like a mechanical steps machine and uh, bars that you can do. I don't go to the gym. Pull-ups, crunches, I don't know. Um, And they're there's a couple of those to the side and there's a small metal frame that I think kids can climb over the top of but beneath it is a little shelter from the sun and on a day like this I'm sure that would be been a welcome break it's surrounded on all four sides really by trees and hedgerow which are quite thick um, and there's a small gate entrance at one end and at the other a wider farm gate which is where I guess the council or whoever comes in and cuts the grass and it is kept really neat and tidy and pristine um, where they come in with their mowers or tractors or whatever it's the kind of place where I think you'd I mean it must be about 100 metres or so from the nearest house or farm holding Um, and from the inside the hedges and fences are so high that it'd be impossible to see what was going on inside here and I just think of how when Andrew kind of flew into a furious rage and started swearing and threatening her how you completely cut off from everything no one would hear the raised voices no one even walking along the roadway on the outside would See what was going on, and how terrifying it must have been for Rachel when, in effect, you know, Andrew was threatening to kill her and take Auden away. And similarly, it strikes me that the thing that a lot of people said about her about how she was kind and personable and had these. Kind of high levels of emotional intelligence and she was caring and compassionate how she was able the time when Andrew wouldn't get out of the car and she just kind of explained to him that well she's just going to drive him to the police station and somehow in those circumstances she managed to turn what was a conflict into some kind of just turn the heat down And when Andrew flew into a rage here and threatened them both how she was seemingly able to talk him down from that and it speaks to someone who even under such pressure and obviously terrified and scared was able to use those soft skills, tap into that empathy that she had and take the heat out of the situation. She was obviously scared, I mean, she talked him into taking him home, but she picked Rob up on the way just so when they got to the other end, she'd have a bit of help to get him out of the car and hopefully defuse the situation. Andrew was obviously ill but that's not an excuse for the threats he made and what would subsequently happen. And Rachel stood by him through all that and all along she cared for him and she wanted him to be better for himself because she didn't want to see anyone in pain and agony but she also knew the value that he would be to Auden as he grew up to have a positive and strong male role model I'm here on my own really which is probably a good thing because a grown-ass man wandering round a children's play park recording and taking photographs isn't a particularly good look. Hello. Yes, I'm here with the dog. But um, I suppose that gives me some cover. But it is peaceful and calm. And you don't know what tensions there were in the air, obviously. Yes you wonder how many times Rachel and Auden came here um, maybe with Andrew with Robert with a mum maybe we brought a picnic or... and how a place which play parks have got an atmosphere haven't they they're, they're brightly coloured play equipment even the kind of spongy recycled rubber floors, they feel jolly places. You know, they're soft under the foot and everything's on a, a smaller scale. And they're places of joy and fun with wide open spaces. But in that moment when Andrew span into a rage, had the tensions been growing or did it come out of nowhere? I'm inclined to think that maybe there was, for a, a period of time, that tension was simmering. I think as their day together came to a close, the reality struck him and he just lost his temper and though there's no evidence that he there was any physical violence certainly his words and his attitude and his approach to Rachel on that day was a a bit of a foreboding for what's to come through the thicket of trees over there probably the closest thing to here but it's through a little bit of a woodland in which there's one of those like a tree trunk that's been set into the ground lengthways and kids do a kind of tightrope walk across it and then with tree stumps embedded in the earth that you jump one to the next on. there's there's Holbrook Sport and Social Club and I guess that's the closest thing to here really I hadn't noticed it before but it's 50 metres away and here on a weekday morning that would have been all closed up and shut and Rachel's realization she called on Robert for support to pick him up on the way to drop Andrew off she sensed I think that something had changed and it wasn't any sense of acceptance in Andrew that they were going to have to start to live their lives differently than he might have dreamt and that he was accepting of that it wasn't it was that he was angry at that and bitter and vicious and lashed out verbally I presume in a way that Rachel hadn't experienced before. This is going to be a two-part episode I've found the more I've read into Rachel's story and spoken to a few people about it and because of that i feel like i need to give her tale more air to breathe and more time to tell it so either later on this week or the beginning of the next there'll be an episode two of this part two of this story and in it we can look at how this story comes to a conclusion and also how Rachel Rachel's story was similar in some ways in terms of how let down she was and how the authorities didn't do enough to protect her just five years after Tanya Moore was killed by a violent partner and how the lessons that were supposed to be learnt really weren't how the statements and apologies and promises that were made after Tanya's murder were simply just words that were spoken and then written on pages and seemingly, even if any structural changes were made, the practical outcome was exactly the same. A young woman who had made everyone fully aware that she was becoming increasingly worried about her safety. A woman who spoke to the authorities, warned the authorities that they felt at risk in danger from an ex-partner and that despite doing everything in their power, taking every step that they were call to. The infrastructure and the support mechanisms that were supposed to be there to protect them entirely failed them. And for something like this to happen five years after Tanya's murder, you've got to ask the question, did anyone actually care? So we'll find that out next week. Or maybe later this week, we'll see how we go. So, if you hit subscribe, and it'll pop into your pod pocket without you having to do anything. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.